Thanks, Aidan. Well, good day. My name is Ben. I'm one of the staff workers here at the CU. And if you've got a Bible or handout there for 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 1 to 4, 7 in front of you, uh, keep that open and let's have a look at it together. One common criticism of Christianity is that Christians are so divided. Uh, consider the following story that you can find floating around on the internet. It goes like this. Uh, Once I was walking along and I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump to his death. So I said to him, don't do it. But he said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? He said, a Protestant. I said, me too. What, What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Uh, He said, "Uh, Northern Baptist. I said, no way, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Reformed Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, that's insane, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1912. So I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. Now, I'm fairly confident that that story isn't real, but it illustrates a real problem, doesn't it? Division and jealousy and quarrelling among Christians, dividing into factions or tribes, and looking down on others who aren't in, in our particular, sometimes very particular, tribe. And I've got to say, if you've ever had that criticism of Christians who act that way, The Bible agrees with you. People who divide into certain camps or tribes within Christianity are usually doing so to make themselves feel more spiritual than those other guys. But the irony is that when Christians do that, the Bible says it's not a sign that they're spiritual, but rather a sign that they are worldly and immature. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 4, where Paul makes this exact point as he writes to this group of Christians in Corinth, the Corinthians. This is what he says to them in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So notice what's happening. Uh, Here in this particular context, they're not rallying around uh, one Baptist council versus another. It's one Christian leader uh, or another. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. And there's division and quarrelling and jealousy among them. But you might be wondering, who on earth are Paul and Apollos? And what's their relationship to the Corinthians? What's going on here? Well, there's some important background that uh, helps us understand what's going on. And I love this. There's the books of the New Testament. Uh, One of the cool things about the Bible is that you've got uh, Paul's letter to the churches, uh, letters to the churches that he wrote at different times, like Corinthians, Ephesians, uh, Thessalonians. We're looking at 1 Corinthians now. Uh, But you also got things like the book of Acts, which give you a historical record of when Paul visited some of those churches. 
So if you've got a Bible in front of you, flip over to the book of Acts, uh, Acts 18. Uh, Otherwise, if not, that's all good. You can just follow along on the screen. And check out what Acts 18 tells us about Paul's history with Corinth. Now, we're going to have to do this a bit of a fly-through and briefly, but hopefully enough to get you an idea of their background. Acts 18 and verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Then from verse 4, while he was in Corinth, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so uh, you can see that he's travelled from where? From Athens to Corinth. Uh, And you can see that on the map. Uh, If you zoom in there, it's not too far of a journey from uh, Athens to Corinth. And we're told in those verses that we just read that while he was there in Corinth, Paul started to preach the gospel. And people start responding. Check out Acts 18, verse 8. It says, Crispus, the synagogue leader, that's the leader of the local Jewish community, Crispus and his entire household believed in the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. How exciting is that? You're witnessing here this account of the birth of a new Christian community in Corinth for the first time. And Paul stays for a while uh, in Corinth while helping this young baby church uh, find its legs. He helps, uh, helps it grow. Verse 11 of Acts 18 says, So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. After a while, though, uh, Paul stayed there. He's helped them. He's been with them. But he knows that there are other regions that haven't yet heard the good news of Jesus. Other people need to hear about Jesus, too. And so after a while, he leaves Corinth and heads to Ephesus, we're told in Acts 18. Now, Ephesus, you can see there on the map. It's this next little uh, leg of his journey as he makes the round trip. So Paul heads off by boat to Ephesus, and then while Paul is gone, we get introduced to another character named Apollos. The name might be familiar. Check out Acts 18, verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, uh, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. This is uh, just after Paul's left there. Uh, this guy, Apollos, was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the, way, in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Now, if you go into Acts 18 in more depth, you'll see that those are two of his friends from Corinth. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, they invited to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So you've got this fascinating turn of events, don't you? Apollos is this guy who really knows the scriptures. He knows his Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, really well. He's preaching about Jesus, but he doesn't have as in-depth a knowledge of the gospel as he might. And so Aquila and Priscilla hear him, they're like, oh, sweet, this dude's on about Jesus. We're good mates with Paul. Let's, let's help you and train you up a bit more in gospel ministry. So Paul and Paulus might not have met, but through Priscilla and Aquila, they're actually they're clearly on the same team here, aren't they? And then Apollos decides that he wants to go to Corinth. You can see going back there to Corinth, which is in the region of Achaia. You can see this in Acts 18, verse 27. It says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's the region in which Corinth is located, uh, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. 
When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here we see Apollos, he's now arrived in Corinth after Paul had left. And what does it say? Do things go badly? Do things go well? It says that he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. He's a great encouragement to this this young church of Corinth that had been saved by the gospel of God's grace uh, through the preaching of Paul. They'd come to Jesus to find forgiveness through his death on the cross and new life through his resurrection. And Apollos was a great encouragement to them. So, so far, things are looking really good. But we can tell from the later letter on Corinthians that things didn't stay good for for the whole time, did they? The Corinthians were still young in the faith, and sadly, it seems clear from 1 Corinthians that they were greatly influenced by the secular culture around them. And a great, a big part of their culture back then was built around impressive rhetoric, fine-sounding speakers that would gain followers, and you would rally around this follower, or this, uh, this speaker, or this speaker, and you'd say, I'm one of them. That was what it was common to do in the culture at Corinth. And that's what the Corinthian Christians started to do do with their Christian leaders. You can imagine some people saying, I think Apollos is way better. His rhetoric is so persuasive. The way he speaks is more impressive. Paul was just entry level. No, I'm an Apollos guy. And others saying, no, Paul's the OG. He's the first guy to come along. And I like his speaking style way better anyway. He's way more down to earth, less flowery. No, I'm on team Paul. So they've got these divisions, and Paul looks at it, and what does he say? In 1 Corinthians 3, he writes to them and says, It is all just so worldly. They're trying to make themselves look more spiritual by attaching themselves to one or the other, but it's actually showing how immature they are in Christ. He says they are mere infants in Christ. They're still babies. The church was birthed years ago now, but they haven't grown up into mature Christian adulthood. And then in this passage, Paul gives them five reasons why it is foolish and worldly to boast in Christian leaders like they're doing. And as we look at what he says to them, it has a lot to teach us about how we think and act as Christians today too. So let's have a look what he says to them. Let's have a look at the first reason. First reason it's foolish to boast in human leaders, because Christian leaders are servants, not saviors. Have a look in your Bibles with me, where we see this in verse 5. Paul says, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Sure, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Now notice here, uh, he doesn't say who, after all, is Apollos. He says what. What are they? What is Apollos? What am I? What role do we play? We are servants. Lowly servants. And you've got it there in your outline or your Bible as well. He re-emphasizes this point in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 1. When he says, this then is how you ought to regard us. 
He seems to really want to emphasize this point, doesn't he? As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He's talking about the gospel there. Now, here's the thing. Servants in Paul's day were not impressive. They didn't have big followings on Instagram. Uh, They weren't famous. The Corinthians saw their Christian leaders as influencers to rally around. Oh yeah, I'm with him. But Paul says, don't see us like that. See us instead as lowly servants. Because while Christian leaders have their role to play, uh, it was, of course, through Paul and Apollos that the Corinthians came to believe the gospel. That's significant. That is important. But, Paul says... It's God who is the decisive one at work. And he uh, is worthy of your adulation and your glory and your praise and your attention. Not us. Not us lowly servants. You can see that clearly in chapter 3, verse 6. Have a look in your Bibles if you've got it there. Where Paul uses this uh, helpful analogy. And he says, look, I planted the seed. Shared the gospel with you guys. Apollos watered it. Discipled them in the gospel. But it is God who gives the growth. You know, think about a wheat farmer. We've had a a bumper crop this past season. But who actually makes that growth happen? It's not like the farmers suddenly decided, you know what, I'm going to have a far more productive crop this season. I just just feel like it might be good to have a bigger wheat crop this year. No, it wasn't just up to their decision, was it? It was due to a number of factors outside human control. Now, of course, the farmer has their role to play, don't they? Till the soil, plant the seeds, water them, fertilise. The farmer has their role to play, but they can't directly make the plants grow. You can't just focus your energy and channel it and go, come on, and just push them up out of the ground. It's it's not humanly possible. And, And that is actually a lot like Christian ministry, Paul is saying. We've got our role to play. Open God's word. Teach the gospel. Look at how the life, death, resurrection of Jesus shapes and impacts our lives. Pray. Those are all things that we can do. But the real growth is outside of human control. It is God who actually does the decisive work in our hearts to change us to be more like Christ. And do you see why that's important for, what, for, for Paul's argument here with the Corinthians? If that's true, then it's therefore God, not human leaders, who deserves the credit and the attention and the glory. So that's, first, that's, that's Paul's first reason why it's foolish to boast in human leaders, because they're servants, not saviours. A second, because uh, Christian leaders are united in a common purpose. Uh, have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this uh, from verse 8. Paul says, the one who plants and the one who waters uh, have one purpose, and they'll be each rewarded according to their own labour. For we, we Christian leaders, guys like me, Paul and Apollos and others, but we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now notice here that although Paul and Apollos each had a different role to play, they were playing a different role in a, a common purpose. They have one purpose, they're one. Namely, that purpose is the growth of God's people. Or he says it in verse 9, we are co-workers. God's co-workers, we're on about this same mission. Growing God's people. 
So if Christian leaders are united in their goal, then how foolish would it be to divide over them? How foolish to pit them against each other if they're actually on the same team? It'd be like if you're flying in a plane and you start arguing with the person next to you. Man, I think the left wing of this plane is doing a far more impressive job. And they're like, no way, the right wing is doing way better. I mean, look at it, it's so beautiful and majestic. Now, I don't mean to trigger any right-wingers or left-wingers in the room. Um, it's just an analogy. Do not read too much into it. But it'd be foolish, wouldn't it? It wouldn't make any sense. They're both working for a common purpose. Both are necessary. Both are working towards the same goal, keeping you in the air. And Paul says it's the same thing with him and Apollos. They both want the Corinthians to grow to be more like Christ. They're united. So it doesn't make any sense to divide over them. Uh, That's for them uh, back in their context. For us today, one implication of this is that joking about Tuesday versus Thursday public meeting, for example, or, oh, my small group's better than your one, uh, those are actually really unhelpful. Oh, I like Tuesday public meeting better. No, no, Thursday's where it's at. Oh, my small group's great. We've got this, you know, really interesting leader. No, even if it's joking, what that does is create a culture of competition. Rather than a culture of, yes, we're all in this together, co-workers for the same purpose. Proclaiming Jesus at UWA to present everyone mature in him. That's what all of our public meetings, all of our small groups, all of our collectives, all of our one-to-ones, what all of those things are on about. And so let's not pit them against each other, even if it's joking. Because Paul's second reason... Uh, why it's foolish to boast in Christian leaders is that they're united in a common purpose. That's his second reason. His third is because Christian leaders are subject to God's judgment, not ours. If in verses 5 to 9, Paul used the analogy of God's people as a field, he now uses the analogy of a building. In fact, you can see that at the end of verse 9, he signals a little switch. Where co-workers, you're God's field, now he switches from verse 10 to you guys uh, being pictured as God's building. Have a look from verse 10. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, well, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the final day, the day of judgment, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. Now, can you imagine in your mind uh, the the picture that Paul is painting? Uh, God's people are like a a building, like like a temple. And Jesus Christ is the foundation of that building. But then, uh, and and Paul, in the Corinthians case, he was the one who laid that foundation. But then others come along, other Christian leaders, and they build on that foundation as they teach and equip and build up God's people. But verse 12, you can see it there, says that some leaders will build with good materials. Gold, silver, costly stones, all those things are fireproof. Good materials, like the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Good materials that build up a strong, healthy, mature church. Not meaning a church building, of course. Remember, it's an image. It's people. But the others, other Christian leaders, are going to come along and build with shoddy materials. 
wood, hay and straw, those things don't last when fire comes. That represents shoddy materials, things like human impressiveness and wisdom that the Corinthians were so attracted to. Things that even today we might try to build a movement or a ministry around. But according to verse 13, on the day of God's judgment, the quality of each person's work will be revealed. And there are three possible outcomes when that happens. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me from verses 14 to 17. Uh, See if you can notice what those three outcomes are. Each one of them is marked with an if. When that day comes, the fire comes along, uh, the the work is tested. Let's see the different outcomes. I'll read through verses 14 to 17, see if you can notice them. If what has been built survives, good quality work shown to be true, lasting on the day. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Did you see the three uh, different outcomes? First possibility, verse 14, what they've built survives. On the last day, when God sees things as they truly are, he sees the human heart and motives, it's shown to be good, faithful gospel work. And Paul says that the Christian leader will receive a reward for their faithful service. Not talking about salvation by works or something like that. The foundation that saves you is Jesus Christ. But God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the first possibility, first outcome. The second is in verse 15. If it is burned up, that building of wood, hay and straw, of of the wood, hay and straw of worldly and superficial Christianity, uh, but if that happens, because the foundation survives, Jesus Christ, that person is actually still saved. Even if it's by the skin of their teeth, even there's no particular well done, they still get in the door because it's not based ultimately on what they've done, whether or not they get saved. It's based on that bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ. The third option, have a look, verses 16 to 17, is that the human leader might actually be a false teacher who destroys God's church, who tells people to build their life on the foundation other than Jesus Christ. And God says the judgment for those false teachers is going to be severe. When you lead others astray, that is dangerous. God cares about these people. He's compassionate in his love. He doesn't want to see people led astray by false teaching. So there are three outcomes. But notice, uh, when are all those three outcomes going to be revealed? One, two, or three. When are you going to find out which is which? We saw it back in verse 13. Have a look at it if you've got it in front of you. It says, the day will bring it to light. The final day of God's judgment. That is when fire will expose and test the quality of each person's work. Which means that in the meantime, we shouldn't judge by outward standards of human impressiveness. Because none of this is going to be revealed until the last day. The buildings might look the same on the outside. You you won't know in the meantime. Uh, Paul makes this explicit in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, which is really the end of this one all-piece-together argument. It hangs together very tightly. Have a look at your Bible or handout if you've got it there. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. 
Paul's saying, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. As a Christian leader, it's, it's not to the standards of this world that I'm accountable. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. I don't get to set the standards for me. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. I'm accountable to him. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He's talking about the Lord Jesus returning on the final day. He, not human approval, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What's Paul saying? Don't judge Christian leaders or churches or ministries now based on outward impressions. Wait till the Lord Jesus returns on the final day because he is the one who's going to reveal what's truly going on in people's hearts. In the meantime, you could have a very impressive Christian leader with a very big and growing church without realising that it's all built with shoddy materials that aren't going to make the cut on the final day. You know, imagine you came to uni this year and decided this is the year that you are going to smash your academics out of the park. HD's all the way, baby, here I come. So you start the semester and you've got your first assignment and you absolutely go to town on it. You don't just do the minimum requirement, you spend ages on it. In the library all day, up every night, you write this 4,000 word essay and it is brilliant. Footnoting, flawless. Argument <laughs> is tight. You bring in philosophical arguments, you definitely refute the alternatives. It's persuasive and impressive. You get it all finished with time to spare and it looks amazing. You hand it in. You get back your grade, and it turns out you've failed. And you think, what? I don't understand. But it turns out the problem is that you didn't look at the marking rubric. You've written this impressive and persuasive 4,000 word essay, but the unit is Math 1011, multi <laughs> Calculus. And they just want you to answer the five questions on the quiz. But it looks so impressive. So persuasive. But on the final day of marking, it was exposed as fluff because it is not what the market is looking for. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that's exactly what it's going to be like for some Christian leaders and churches and ministries. Right now, they look very impressive. Charismatic personalities, excellent speakers, big numbers and budgets. It all looks so humanly impressive. But that's not what God's looking for. In God's eyes, human impressiveness is wood and hay and straw, and it's going to burn. What God is looking for is faithful, humble servants who will clearly preach the gospel. Who will put the limelight on Jesus, not on themselves. And will use the gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he's done in his death and resurrection. Not only to bring people into the kingdom, but to build them up. That that will be what strengthens them and brings them to maturity. That is what God delights in. 
You know, those leaders might not be humanly impressive. They might not have the best rhetoric or the biggest churches. But on the last day, it's going to become clear that that's where the gold was all along. And if that's true, then it would be foolish to boast in Christian leaders based on human impressiveness, wouldn't it? That would be so superficial. And that's Paul's third reason why it's foolish to boast in human leaders. Because they're subject to God's judgment in God's timing by God's standards. Not our judgment now by human standards. His fourth reason is because human wisdom and impressiveness are folly. Now, we won't spend much time on this one at all, very brief, because Paul has already made uh, this same argument in more depth uh, in chapters 1 and 2, which Matt really helpfully unpacked for us in the last few weeks. Um, And if you want to get in on that and find out more about the the chapters leading up to this one, uh, you can check out our podcast. You can find it through the Facebook page or website. Uh, But but here again, Paul states it briefly. Have a look in your Bibles and hit verse 18, where Paul spells this out. And says, what what humans so often see as wisdom is actually folly in God's sight. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools in the world's eyes, so that you may become truly wise in God's eyes. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Takeaway. Don't look for Christian leaders who are wise by God's standards. Be willing to embrace what looks foolish in the eyes of the world if that's true, good gospel ministry. That's Paul's fourth reason. His fifth and final, why it's foolish to boast in human leaders, is because all things are ours in Christ. Have a look in your Bibles with me from verse 21. It says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas is another Christian leader, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. No more boasting about human leaders. Why? For, so the word for there is giving us the reason not to boast, for all things are Yours. That's the reason. But what on earth does it mean? Because I don't know if it's just me, but when I first read this, I was really confused by it. The final reason is actually the climax of Paul's argument, and in some ways the most important and helps all the others hold together, but it's a bit confusing. What does he mean that all things are theirs? Well, it's a wordplay that doesn't come across quite as well in English as it does in the original Greek that Paul wrote this letter in, but you'll be able to see the connection once we point it out. Um, Back in verse 4, when people were saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, uh, the original wording uh, in Greek literally says, I am Paul's, or I belong to Paul. And I am Apollos's, meaning I belong to Apollos. And the NRV translation has really helpfully brought that out because saying, I follow them, it's like saying, I belong to them. It's like saying, you know, I belong to the Anglican church, you might say. It's the normal way of saying, I'm with them. And then in verse 21, Paul flips that around and says, you don't belong to them. You don't belong to Paul or to Apollos. They belong to you. You don't exist to serve them. They exist to serve you. Now, to fully get your heads around this, I reckon it's helpful to be able to picture what Paul is saying here. 
Uh, the Corinthians were dividing into these factions, as you can see on this diagram on the PowerPoint, um, following Paul or Apollos or different Christian leaders and saying, I'm in this group or I'm in this group. But Paul is saying, no, 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 zoom out. Zoom out to see the bigger picture of all of creation under Christ's rule, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. You guys are seeing yourself as here and having these, these petty little arguments with these factions under these little servants and these little Christian groups or tribes. But he's saying, Paul's saying, you don't belong here. You belong where? You belong here. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. You belong to Christ and in Christ all things belong to you. Because you're united to Christ by faith. And so Christ has given all these things for your benefit to grow you in Christ's likeness. Don't impoverish yourself saying, I belong to this one particular teacher or this one particular denomination. When God has given all of those to grow you, to serve you, not just one Christian ministry or another. Not just, oh, I'm with, I'm with Crew West, I'm with Scripture Union. No, they're all yours. Embrace them both. If it's going to help you grow in Christ's likeness, if it's good gospel teaching ministry, it's all yours. And Paul lands his argument here because this is clear. This is, this is key. The clearer we see all that belongs to us in Christ, the less we will try to find our belonging in the people or things or groups of this world. The more firmly we grasp all that Christ has won for us through his death and resurrection, the more we'll be able to let go of chasing after human impressiveness and labels. You know, in our context, it's probably not Paul and Apollos that we're going to argue over. Maybe it's uh, Ben Smart, I'm with him, or I'm with Matt Smith. No! We're your slaves, we belong to you. Or maybe it's, oh, I'm Presbyterian or I'm Pentecostal. Don't make such a big thing about these tribal divisions. All things are yours in Christ. I'm part of a prayer group made up of pastors and Christian leaders from all different backgrounds around Perth. We've got Charismatics and Anglicans and Baptists and Churches of Christ. We've even got some Presbyterians. We're a very inclusive group. We've got the full range and yes, of course, we do have very real differences on secondary issues and in the way we do things on Sunday. But I love gathering with them because they are fellow co-workers in the one true gospel of Christ. And we're united in our desire to make Jesus known in Perth and beyond. Are some Christians divided? Sadly, yes, they are. But the more we fix our eyes on our King Jesus Christ... And less on human impressiveness, the more it cuts the ground out from even the possibility of us wanting to fight with other Christians about these small things.